Ephesians chapter 2. We will be reading from verses 17 to 22, but our focus this morning will be on verse 20. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole church, excuse me, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This morning, as you may have noticed, um, we are taking a slight break from the book of Proverbs, and we are looking at some verses in the book of Ephesians. And so um, one of the things I want to do this morning is to uh, start laying the foundation, as it were, um, with this particular message, and then at a subsequent time uh, to build upon that in the future. Now, at 11.25 a.m. on March 15th in 1986, a six-story building had collapsed in less than six, in less than one minute. This building was located in Singapore. Now, it was said that the building had a commercial bank and a nightclub on the second floor, And then the remaining floors were taken up with 67 hotel rooms. Utilizing over 500 personnel over the course of about four days, they were able to uh, retrieve about 17 people from the rubble. However, there were nearly twice as many fatalities. Now, An investigation into the cause of the collapse found that there were structural faults relating to the design of the building. The engineer, as it turned out, was unqualified, and his miscalculation had cost people their lives. Now, in instances like these, you don't want a mathematics that's based on critical theory, right? You want a mathematics that is precise, that is accurate. Otherwise, there can be grave consequences. Any misstep, particularly as it comes to the foundation of a building, can be disastrous. Now, God himself is a builder and an architect. As a matter of fact, um, 
a few weeks ago when we were in the book of Proverbs, we had looked at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. I remind you again, particularly in verse 19 of the book of Proverbs, what, it's, what it said. It said, the Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. Again, we said that one of the definitions of wisdom related to skillful craftsmanship. God, as a skillful craftsman, it says, founded the earth. Again, this word founded means to fix or to establish. You hear the word foundation in it. And last time, as I mentioned, the word is often used in scripture in reference to the establishment of the temple. And this is not by accident, for even in the verses that we have before us this morning, we see the same God who founded the earth also founded the church. In other words, the church is God's creation. Again, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Paul here again is speaking to Christians. He says in verses 14 to 15 that both Jews and Gentiles were now one new man. Now this one new man constituted God's temple. Peter, therefore, says of believers that we are living stones in God's spiritual household in 1 Peter 2, verse 5. And so, in our verses from Ephesians, notice that God's house has a foundation. And this foundation is built upon, upon three things. The apostles, the prophets, and Jesus himself. Now we know that Christ himself says that he is building his church. And just as a a side note, as I was thinking about it, it is interesting that in the incarnation, Jesus took on the profession of a carpenter. It's Almost as if even as the God-man, he couldn't help but build and, and create things. But in what sense do we say that the church is built upon the apostles and the prophets? Well, it is to this subject that I want us to begin to answer that question. More specifically, we'll focus on the office of the apostle. And then at a later date, I'd like to revisit 
what the Bible teaches about prophets and prophecy. And so today we will consider just two points. First, the message of the apostles. And second, the miracle of the apostles. In the first instance, in order to understand the message of the apostles, we need to understand what an apostle was. Now, in the Roman Empire, an apostolos, which we get the English word apostle from, was anyone with the authority to speak on behalf of the emperor. The apostolos had such authority that to disobey him was to disobey the Caesar. And so the apostolos delivered the emperor's word, which was as binding as if the emperor himself spoke. Similarly, in the New Testament, we see that there were certain men who were called apostles of Jesus. The idea, again, is that the apostles spoke on behalf of Jesus. There were his representatives, and their words carried as much authority as the Lord Jesus himself. And so, to disobey the teachings of the apostles was, in essence, to disobey Christ. Again, if we're thinking biblically about the office of the apostle, then not just the words of Jesus should be in red letters, but even the writings of the apostles themselves. Now, this is something that the Roman Catholic Church rightfully understands. Rome believes in the authority of the scriptures in addition to the authority of church traditions. Since the Pope is the apostolic successor of the Apostle Peter. The writings of the Pope and the words of the Pope, when functioning in the office of the Pope, is on the same level as the Scripture. Again, if we travel back to 1869, in 1869, Pope, uh, Pope Pius IX held a council called Vatican I. At this council, the doctrine of papal infallibility was formally established by the Roman Catholic Church. Now the document says, If anyone says that it is not by the institution of Christ the Lord himself, that is to say, by divine law, that blessed Peter should have perpetual successors in the primacy primacy over the whole church, or that the Roman pontiff is not the successor of blessed Peter in this primacy, let him be anathema. Right? So according to Vatican I and upheld by Vatican II and, and, um, and Roman councils that came afterward, if anyone does not believe that the Pope is the apostolic successor of Peter, then that individual 
should be damned to hell. That's what anathema means. And so the document continues. We teach and define as a divinely revealed dogma that when the Roman pontiff speaks ex cathedra, that is, when in the exercise of his office as shepherd and teacher of all Christians, in virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine concerning faith or morals to be held by the whole church. He possesses, by the divine assistance promised to him in Blessed Peter, that infallibility which the divine Redeemer willed his church to enjoy in defining doctrine concerning faith or morals. Therefore, such definitions of the Roman pontiff pontiff are of themselves and not by the consent of the church irreformable. So, what that all means is that when the Pope speaks as far as concerns his office as Pope, his words are infallible and divine and carry all the weight as if God himself was making that command. And so anyone, whether the Pope or someone who claims to be an apostle today, needs to be aware of the full implications of what they are saying when they make a claim to that office. Again, if you claim to be an apostle, then you are also claiming to speak with all of the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And whatever you say as an apostle bears all of the authority of the scriptures as well. Again, think about what the Apostle Peter says about the writings of Paul in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 to 16. The text says, and regard, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Peter again says that the writings of Paul are on the same level as the Old Testament scriptures. And so anyone who claims to be an apostle cannot at the, at the same time believe in sola scriptura. That is that scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice. Why can't they say that? Because revelation is still continuing. God is still speaking. And the writings of that individual are on the same level as the scripture itself. Now, this 
authority doesn't only end with what the person writes, but it, but it also extends into what that person says as well. In other words, even what they say when speaking as an apostle bears the full authority of the scriptures as well. For their words are God's words. I remind you of what Paul says about his own writings in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. He says this to the Thessalonians. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So then, to disobey someone who claims to be an apostle when they speak, at the very least on issues concerning life and godliness, would in essence be to sin and to disobey God. Now, what does Rome base apostolic succession on? Ironically, they base this on the scriptures themselves. Now, I previously quoted to you part of Matthew 16. That's the portion where Jesus says that he is building his church. But there is much more that those verses uh, state regarding that. Again, Matthew 16, verses 13 to 19, we read, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that when you, I also say that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, Jesus in these verses uses a play on words. The word for Peter, which is Petros, means a small stone. Rock or Petra means foundation boulder. And so Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, the question is, which rock is he referring to? Is he referring to Peter or is he referring to something else? 
Now, when we read the text carefully, the evidence, I believe, points to something else. The rock, which is the foundation boulder of the church, was not Peter, but rather Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. And so the foundation of the church was not the apostles themselves, but rather the revelation of Christ that those men would teach to the church. It is this sense that it is said in Ephesians 2 that the apostles and prophets are part of the foundation of the church. Again, the apostles were said to have received infallible, special revelation from God himself. Consider in the next chapter of Ephesians what Paul says about this revelation. In Ephesians 3, 1 to 6, it says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, For the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. I wrote before, I wrote as I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, excuse me, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Again, Paul says that it was by a revelation in the spirit that the mystery of the Gentiles being fellow heirs with the Jews and partakers of the promise of Christ was made known to him. In other words, the foundation or the foundational message of the church as delivered by the apostles and the New Testament prophets, is Christ. It is Christ. It is the gospel, right? It is rejoice for the Messiah has come. And so my question is this. Has the foundation been laid or not? Are there still yet foundational truths about Christ and his church that modern-day apostles and prophets have yet to reveal? The answer is no. Again, the person who claims to be a modern-day apostle or a modern-day prophet is claiming a very weighty title. Just consider how the New Testament books were chosen. They were chosen because they were written by an apostle or an acquaintance of an apostle. This is 
the essence of what it means that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It means that the teachings of the apostles and prophets dictated the doctrine and practice of the church. This is why in the early church there were qualifications for being an apostle. Not just anyone could be an apostle. For being an apostle was a big deal. This then leads us to our second point, which is the miracles of the apostles. Now, in the book of Acts, we find that there are certain qualifications of an apostle. In Acts chapter 1, verses 20 to 26, the disciples are gathered together in the upper room, and Peter stands up and says that Judas, the one who betrayed Christ, has to be replaced as an apostle. Uh, Peter says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied, accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, being beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know who you, Lord, know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go <clears throat> to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Again, notice that there is a criteria that must be met for an apostle. The candidates for the office of apostle had to be someone who was present during the earthly ministry of Jesus. And furthermore, they had to be an eyewitness to his resurrection. This again makes sense since the apostles would be the ones who would speak on behalf of of Christ. This was the first major qualification. Now, if we're thinking carefully about this, then this creates a serious problem for one apostle in particular. That apostle is the Apostle Paul. In fact, we see this same issue being raised again and again by his adversaries. And Paul has to address this quite a few times. There were people who were constantly questioning his authenticity as an apostle because he was not present during Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, 
<clears throat> this is certainly different from how we typically think of the Apostle Paul today. It is even commonly believed that Paul was the true replacement for Judas instead of Matthias. But Paul did not see himself as a replacement for Judas, nor did he even see himself as one of the twelve. In fact, if we read carefully in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-9, we see that Paul makes a distinction between the twelve apostles, other apostles, um, such as uh, Barnabas, he's called an apostle in Acts 14, 14, and himself. Paul may even be suggesting in this text that he is both the least and the last of the apostles. The text says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-9, For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. <clears throat> so even though Paul was not present during the ministry, the earthly ministry of Christ, he still met the qualification of seeing the risen Lord and even though Paul was not an apostle like one of the twelve, he still had the same level of authority as one of the twelve. Again, as I previously mentioned, Peter himself considered the writings of Paul on the same level as the scriptures themselves. Now, Paul over in 2 Corinthians defends his ministry as an apostle by emphasizing yet another qualification for this office. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 11 to 12, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you. For in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I was a nobody, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs, wonders, and miracles. Paul says that the office of apostle was also accompanied by signs, wonders, and miracles. Now, think carefully with me for a moment. In the book of Acts, we often get this mental image that everyone was abounding with miracles and supernatural power. But if everyone in the early church was performing signs, 
wonders, and miracles, then this in, a, uh, this in and of itself would not be a unique qualification for an apostle. Again, if we recall, Paul even says in 1 Corinthians that some worked miracles, but others did not. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, 29 to 31, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Now, the obvious answer to the series of questions that the Apostle Paul asks is no. Paul says that not everyone speaks with tongues, not everyone has gifts of healing, and not everyone works miracles. And yet, the apostles themselves possessed signs, wonders, and miracles to such an extent that it was said to have been a qualification for an apostle. And so, as one writer notes regarding Paul's defense of his apostolic ministry among the Corinthians, not only the doctrine which he preached, the power that attended it, and the success it met with among them were clear signs and evident proofs of his being sent by Christ, not only they themselves, who were converted under his ministry, were testimonials and seals of his apostleship, but also the many other wonders, but also the many other wonderful works done by him confirmed the same and showed him to be an apostle, and that he was not a whit behind, but equal to the chiefest of them. Nor does he refer them to signs that were wrought by him among others and in other places, which were many, but to those which they themselves were eyewitnesses of, and therefore might and ought to have spoken of them in defense of him and in order to stop the mouths of the false apostles. Now, while this was not the only reason for signs, wonders, and miracles, the primary reason was that it confirmed that the message of the apostles was from God. Incidentally, John also says that this is the same reason for many of the miracles that Jesus himself performed. I remind you again of John 20, verses 30 to 31, which states, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, Anyone can claim to 
have some new teaching from God. But the evidence that what that person says is true are signs, wonders, and miracles that are performed. Again, there were believers who spoke with tongues and performed miraculous deeds who were not apostles in the early church. But on the other hand, the apostles themselves possessed many, if not in fact all, of the gifts of the Spirit. The center of the miraculous gifts flowed forth from the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we are not surprised then, for instance, when we read in Acts 15, 12 to 17, that at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. We should also not be surprised at the effect that the signs and wonders achieved as well. For verse 14 goes on to states, And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. People believed the message of the apostles that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. So the miracles authenticated the message. And the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundational truth upon which the church is built. Now, with the passing of the apostles, miracles, signs, and wonders naturally decreased. And even some revelatory gifts, such as tongues, which, according to the book of, Revel, uh, book of Corinthians, is revelation, and prophecy ceased as well. For again, what more revelation regarding Jesus Christ does the church stand in need of? Again, to be clear... I'm not saying that miracles do not happen today. But what I am saying is that we just don't see the same type of signs and wonders on the level and with the consistency as that of the apostles in the book of Acts. There is a difference, and I would argue a reason for that difference. The church should therefore be careful in regards to expecting the same ongoing miraculous work as we have recorded in the book of Acts. Now, when I preached in the prisons, I remember on one occasion there was an inmate who said that he was an Acts 29 Christian. Well, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, the book of Acts only has 28 chapters. And so the point that he was making was that 
He believed that everything that you see happening in the book of Acts should still be happening today. To which I pointed him to some of the examples of the things that we have in the book of Acts to try to to get him to compare that to is that what we should be expecting to see happening today and is that in fact what is happening again i want to draw your attention to some of the things that we see happening in the book of acts again i make the point that In the book of Acts, we have a unique period in church history where miracles, signs, and wonders abounded. Church was in its infancy, and again, the foundation was being laid. How was the way, as the early believers were called, to be distinguished from the next new religion or philosophy? It was by the signs, wonders, and miracles. One of which, as an example, is the tongues of fire. Now, in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, it's a very familiar passage. It is, of course, the day of Pentecost. The 11 apostles are gathered together with the disciples. And suddenly there is a noise as of a tornado. And then there is the appearance of what looks like visible tongues of fire accompanied by foreign languages. Now, ask yourself the following questions. Should we expect to see visible tongues of fire today resting upon those who claim to be speaking in tongues? Was this event a regular occurrence even in the book of Acts? Or was it a once for all time occurrence? I argue that Pentecost as recorded in the book of Acts, was never meant to be repeated. It was a once-for-all-time redemptive act, much like the cross that has ongoing effects. The Pentecost and the subsequent Pentecost experiences in the book of Acts signal that both believing Jews and believing Gentiles were one new man in God's holy temple. As Richard B. Gaffin Jr. notes, the corporate or ecclesiological dimension of this union needs to be stressed. Pentecost, as often pointed out, is the birthday of the church as the new covenant people of God and the body of Christ. In particular, the spirit poured out at Pentecost constitutes the church as a dwelling place of God in the spirit, 
as the temple of God in which the spirit of God dwells. Believers are living stones who together make up a great spiritual house. Again, let's consider another example from the book of Acts and ask the question again, is this what we should expect to see and is this what we are seeing? In Acts chapter 8, verses 14 to 19, the text says, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Again, in Acts chapter 8, it says that the Holy Spirit himself was given as the apostles laid their hands on the believers. Here, though, we must be careful about what we conclude in regards to the giving and the receiving of the Spirit through the laying on of hands. The giving and the receiving of the Spirit does not always mean the same thing, does not always refer to regeneration or indwelling. In fact, a lot of times it is a reference to empowerment. Jesus, like the disciples, for instance, was said to receive the Spirit multiple times. In fact, before the day of Pentecost came, the disciples were said to have received the Spirit in John chapter 20, verses 22. And so, returning to the question at hand in Acts 8, should we expect today to see the necessity of the laying on of hands by a so-called modern-day apostle before we can receive the Holy Spirit. Is that to be the normative pattern in the church today? The answer, of course, is no. Well, one more example. In the same chapter, Acts 8, 36-40, Philip preaches Christ to an Ethiopian eunuch who believes and is baptized. In verse 29, we read that when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at at Azotus. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Again, when was the last time that you heard about God teleporting anyone to another location? 
And should this be something that we should expect to be seeing today? And why is it that modern day apostles and prophets need private jets? Why don't they just teleport to where they need to be? Again, I say this kind of tongue in cheek, but the point again is in the book of Acts, we have a unique time in church history. And not everything that we see happening in the book of Acts is meant to be repeated today. So, in closing, I want to reaffirm, in case there were any doubts, that miracles do still happen today. Okay? We serve a miracle-working God. And yet, a miracle, by its very definition, is something that is extraordinary. It is supernatural. It is something that is not normative. When we look throughout the Old Testament into the New, we see that there are certain periods of time where we find clusters of miracles happening. We think, for instance, of the redemption of God's people from Egyptian bondage. Then there are the judges, Samson and Gideon. And and then again, there are long stretches between the judges before God did a miraculous act. Then between the close of the Old Testament to the coming of John the Baptist, there is another 400 years of silence. And then beginning with John, we see a multitude of miracles taking place with Jesus, the apostles, and the early church. Now, we often think of miracles, right, as being for our benefit, right? When we pray, we don't necessarily think about redemptive history or what God is doing uh, to, to bring about his own glory. We, we tend to think of it as, God, I need a miracle. I need to be healed. I need whatever it is, right? But a lot of what we find in in, in scripture when it comes to the, to the miracles has a corporate reason. It has a, a dimension that is not just for the, the sole individual in the body, but the, the group of believers, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, they are the primary implication, to put it another way, is for the group of believers Sure, are there individual benefits? Definitely. But again, as we look at the, the scriptures, we see that the, the, the group of believers, the body of believers, the, the people of God is the, the main emphasis as a whole in regards to miracles. Again, God can and does miraculously heal And he still moves in ways that can only be described as supernatural. 
But this does not necessitate a church where signs, wonders, and miracles are normative, especially since the foundation has been laid. Today, the regular manifestation of the Spirit in the church should not be overlooked for the spectacular. For the power of the Spirit is not in showmanship, but in the manifestation of a vibrant love for Christ and the people of God. The Spirit's power is on display in our lives when we bring light to those who are in darkness, when we live holy lives, when we plead the cause of the oppressed and the helpless, when we boldly and unashamedly love what God loves and hate what God hates. This is the power of Christ and the message of the gospel at work, which again is the foundation upon which the church is built. Amen? Amen. Let us go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your holy word, for indeed you have spoken. And you continue to speak by way of your word to your people. For the word of God indeed is living and a sharp two-edged sword that by the power of the Spirit is able to convict, to train in righteousness, to sanctify. Lord, we thank you for those who have gone before, who by their very blood given have laid the foundation of the church once and for all. I pray, Lord, that we would not take this for granted. We thank you, Lord, that in the providence of time that you were pleased to send your son and to bring about the full revelation of the redemption of all of the people of God into one new man. Christ has indeed come. And we thank you for that solid foundation upon which the church is built. The foundation which is Christ, the cornerstone. It is a solid foundation. It is a foundation that is able to withstand the storm and the hurricane and the wind and the waves and persecution and death. For it, it, is, for it is a solid and eternal foundation. It is a truth that we will 
not just glory now and think on now, but it is a truth in which we will glory and meditate on in the endless ages to come. So, Lord, even as you are building your church, I pray that you would continue to fit the stones of the people of God together here at Grace Fellowship Church. As you continue to add to our number, may we continue to show forth the power of the Holy Spirit through transformed lives and through the gospel, which has the power to save. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.